0: I'm Sally, Jason's mom.
1: I'm Dave, Jason's dad.
0: And I'm Gretchen, Jason's sister. You're listening listening to Jazz Jazz Session with Jason Crane.
2: Oh, thank God. Lesson
1: one, basic hip.
2: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode number 456 for Thursday, January 14th, 2016. On today's show, trumpeter and composer Steve Lampert. Chubop, chubop my baby, chubop, chubop.
0: Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? seems like a mighty long time. Chubot, chubot, my baby. Ooh. It seems like a mighty.
2: The show is back! It's been forever since there was an episode of the Jazz Session. Well, not forever, but it's been since May of last year. Uh, the show was in hiatus while I took a new job in radio, working at a AAA station in State College, Pennsylvania, where I broadcast every day on the morning show. That's been a total blast, but I've really missed all of you and missed making these episodes of the Jazz Session. And I've got a plan, which is this. I'm going to make two episodes a month, every other Thursday... Starting today, obviously, uh, for the foreseeable future. That's the idea, for as long as I possibly can. I've already got a bunch of episodes in the can, so I know that the first few months are already recorded, so I'm not going to make one episode and disappear, I promise. And if you'd like to help me keep making episodes, many of you have stuck with me all of this time, even when I haven't been making shows, which has been amazing because actually your contributions have helped me keep the website up because it has so much traffic still. And it has so many hundreds of gigabytes of content that actually it's quite expensive just to keep it online. So if you'd like to help, you can go to thejazzsession.com and uh, click on the Donate button. It's very easy. It's five bucks a month. And your contribution really helps keep the site in existence. I'm super excited to be back, and we are starting the show in style. Steve Lampert has a great new album, actually the first of a pair of albums, called Zoskal's Jukebox. 59 compositions, all very, very short, over two CDs. Let's hear one of them right now. This is how the album opens. very excited to welcome for uh, this first episode of the brand new jazz session Steve Lampert to the show Steve thanks so much for being here
1: uh, it's my pleasure man
2: you've released half of and are about to release the other half of this really ambitious project called Zoskel's Jukebox uh, it's volume one and volume two it's 59 pieces which first of all is amazing when you say that it's two two records and 59 songs um, but <laughs> when I listened to it the very first time uh, I, two images came into my head. Uh, one of them I, I a sense, have posted to social media long after my first listening. But the first image that came to my head was, I'm a big fan of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, and particularly the radio version from the, the 70s. And this these two albums struck me very much as music that could have been playing on the main spaceship in those books while they're cruising the galaxy. It, it feels like <laughs> that on the one hand. And then the other image that struck me was I lived in Japan for quite a while, and there's a, you may know, but there's a game in Japan called Pachinko, which is basically like a vertical pinball game that everybody plays, and it's it's kind of a, an easy way to gamble. And uh, this this album kind of reminded me of what you might hear in a pachinko parlor if you were to discover one on another Earth-like planet.
1: That wasn't <laughs> quite
2: Earth, but it had some of the same tendencies.
1: It is great, man.
2: And given what you've written inside, which has kind of a, a space age feel to it as well, I wondered if you could maybe start us off by talking about like the thirty thousand foot view of this record, the, the conceptual basis of these two volumes of Zoskal's Jukebox.
1: Well, yeah, um, the conceptual basis of it, I can describe best, I think, by reading actually the, the short paragraph that's inside the uh, liner on the CD. Can I do that for you? Please do. Yeah. Okay. It says Zaskel and his gal pal like to cut school, chill on exoplanets and dig hits from across the universe on his quantum jukebox. Sometimes they even check out music from a distant twinkle called earth, make some giggle and dance. So, I mean, yeah. that, that really was the, the conception of the thing before I wrote one note, that was the conception. So
2: you you actually had that image in your brain before you even started writing the music.
1: Totally, <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of like a uh, you know a, a social music of the future kind of vibe.
2: <laughs> and were you? I mean, were you reading something that caused that to spring into your head? Was it one day you woke up and there it was? Do you have any idea where that image came from?
1: It came from my interest in all things having to do. With um, planetary science and with uh, you know ongoing research throughout the universe and so on, and it also had to do really with my childhood, because um, I'm probably distant enough from it by now to say that I cut a lot of school, you know, through, through <laughs> grade school <laughs> with friends, and we would chill out and we would listen to music and we would play music, and uh, it was kind of a combination of, of my interest in science, not so much in science fiction, but in science. And my own life as a kid, which is, like, as I say, pretty distant now, but forms a lot of uh, who I am, you know.
2: See, I think truancy gets a bad rap, and you're living proof of that.
1: (laughs) Well, I recovered. I had to do a lot of work to catch up, you know what I mean? I I made it through all school, all my schooling, you know, but I, I was not a good student. I got through in spite of myself.
2: (laughs) This is the one episode of the jazz session I won't be playing for my own kids until they've graduated, I think.
1: Yeah, It's a smart move.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So it it strikes me that it's quite a ways from, well, here's an image I have in my mind, to 59 pieces of music. How did you even start? Was there a a thematic idea? Was there a a, a series of of motive ideas? How, How did it even start getting down uh, onto paper or
1: onto a recording? The first thought was that um, prior to this record, or these two records, I did a project, recorded it, and finished it. It hasn't come out, but actually it's go- that one also was going to come out later this year. And that record was an hour, um, which while it was divided into 12 parts, actually tracked continuously. It was an hour of nonstop music. So I was thinking, as I tried to do each, each record should be really different, I was thinking it would be interesting to write very short pieces. So the first thought um, was, was to take an hour's worth of music, which is generally what you find on a CD, and break it into 60-second long sections. So before your listeners think about 59 pieces that each last 20 minutes, you know, it's 59 pieces, each of which lasts one minute. that that was the initial idea to make very short pieces of music also i did have it in the back of my mind that um it seems like attention spans generally have shortened but even without that being the case the tradition in um, jazz and pop music for so many decades through the singles generation was that songs were three minutes long and in many ways unless you're a Charlie Parker, or a John Coltrane, you know, or Schoenberg, or Elliot Carter, three minutes can often be plenty. You know, like Bradley used to say, if you, if you can't say it in three, you can't say it at all. He was talking about choruses, not minutes, but I think there's a relation there. So I was thinking, at the rate we're going, in the distant future, that the general attention span might be under three minutes. <laughs> you know <what> <laughs> so just just comically, I had that in mind as well. Let me see if I can make these very brief yet complete feeling statements of very short length. Um, Once that was kind of decided, then it was a question really of finding musical materials and how to do it so that each piece would be um, clearly articulated from each other piece, from each of the other pieces, yet work together as as, as a cycle of pieces, you know?
2: So then I assume volume three will be 59 one-second pieces, (laughs) and the whole album will take one minute to listen to.
1: (laughs) Well, if there was going to be a volume three, I would consider that. But no, (laughs) volume two is the end of this stuff.
0: (laughs)
2: changing pieces i think actually make there's a lot of challenging music on these records but there's because everything moves so quickly i think the records are are really really listenable Uh, in fact i think these records are kind of indescribable this is one of the times when i'm happiest that people are hearing excerpts from this album as we're talking because i wouldn't really know how to put into words what these albums sound like all i know is that when i put them on i'm I'm disappointed in the best way when they're over. You know, I think, oh, wow, that was really, really fun to listen to. And every time I go back, because so much is happening and going by so quickly, I feel it's like one of those uh, things you can dip back into again and again, and you find something new every time, which I I really don't get with a lot of records these days.
1: Man, that's so nice. Thank you so much. I can't think of of a nicer compliment. And I know for myself that the music I love the most, regardless of its length, and I, I like some music that goes on for a very long time. The music grows shorter with every listening, often to the point where where a 20 minute piece or a half hour piece feels like four or five minutes to me. It just it, it stops time in in the best way possible, you know. So that's that means something to me because. I'm sure there are people that might, you know might listen to this music and be so completely perplexed that you know a half hour music feels like six hours. But if they feel like it's less, that it's less than than a half an hour, I'm I'm very pleased, and I've had a few people say that to me as well. That it seems to go by quickly, and they like it. You know, so yeah, now, that's beautiful,
2: Steve. Uh, in terms of the compositions themselves, are there? And I, to be honest, I haven't. Uh, you know, maybe been able to tease all of this out but i feel like there are there are definitely pieces that build on other pieces or incorporate elements of other pieces like that that if as you listen you will you will hear certain ideas whether they're rhythmic or melodic uh, kind of come back in new permutations is that accurate
1: um yes especially uh rhythmically the the way um I don't want to end up sounding like i'm like I'm giving a theory class, but what especially rhythmically um one piece leads into the next in all of these pieces, all fifty nine of them there are two different metronomic speeds happening at once. there are two layers of rhythm, and one of the layers of rhythm in each piece, which is heard uh being stated by a walking bass line, becomes the underlying pulse. In the electronic percussion on the next piece, so there's this this kind of crisscrossing of um, rhythmic layers that leads you from one piece to the next. So on that side, yeah, absolutely, there's a tight relationship. And in terms of the pitch stuff, there are relationships, but um, they're not obvious um, in the compositions themselves. They may be more connected in a motific way through the players themselves, through the uh, the soloists, Noah Preminger and John O'Gallagher. Um, they, they play things that at times connect one piece to another in a much more literal way than the compositions themselves do. But the compositions um, are very much related pitch-wise structurally um, as they all come from a particular family of... Um, What I would call baselines, but which in reality are 12 tone rows and those things do set up relationships as you move through the cycle so there's all kinds of interrelationships that are there ranging really from very subtle to perhaps more obvious um, when it comes to the solo playing.
2: I can imagine somebody hearing what you just said and thinking, "Oh my god, I don't understand 80% of yeah, that." And the yeah. the beauty of this record is you don't need to understand even a percent of it. I think the the fact that all of that is behind this music and yet or and also this music is so listenable is kind of a beautiful thing.
1: I I totally agree and I tell you I'm so hesitant to even begin to talk about the the technical aspects of the music because it is just totally not important to the listener it would be like you know interviewing somebody that's playing standard tunes and having the interview be them calling off the changes to the tunes I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean it's it's completely beside the point so But it's the only way I could approach you than answering your question.
2: Yeah, no, and I don't want to dissuade you from talking about the technical because, I mean, certainly people who listen to the jazz session, besides being better looking than the average podcast listeners, are also, uh, you know, big fans of music. And so people listen for a variety of reasons, and some of them are listening to find out what's behind the curtain. So I I don't want to dissuade you from doing that, but I just want to say to people uh, that if you approach these albums from a, a theory standpoint, you won't be disappointed. But if you decide to approach them not at all from a theory standpoint, you also won't be disappointed. And I, th- I think it rewards either kind of listener. You um, you mentioned uh, Noah Preminger and uh, John O'Gallagher. Noah's been on this show uh, before, and so folks can look in the archives for that. Uh, why those two players, Steve?
1: I love the way they play. <laughs> I love their sounds. Um, they're They're both incredible you know, virtuosos on their instrument and they're both deep thinkers on their instrument. And they also, um, contrast greatly, you know, while I I love them both just equal up, they're very different kinds of players. And, um, I felt that that would really provide a a great sense of contrast on the records and from on a piece to piece basis as well.
2: I remember, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go
1: go ahead. Go ahead.
2: I was just going to say I remember once um uh, my contention which makes a lot of uh my jazz friends angry is that Branford Marsalis's best playing was with Sting. And I remember once uh when he was with Sting w- seeing him interviewed and he said, uh, you know, one difference between playing with Sting and playing with my own band is that when I solo, I have to get to the meat of it immediately in Sting's band. I don't have time to you know, to build over five minutes or 10 minutes. Well, you have taken what he was talking about and made it even more compressed. And so I wonder what particular challenges that might have presented for Noah and John and how you even presented it to them.
1: Um, as far as what challenges it presented for them, I I really can't answer that for them. But what I can tell you is um, the way you're characterizing it is absolutely true. It's, it was a very deep challenge. Because there was no time for them to really build a solo in, in the traditional sense that they and I would, would think in terms of building a solo. Had to come in, play something, make it go here and stop, you know. Um, the way I presented it to them was they had the baselines um, for these pieces. This, this may actually cl- clarify. I'm going to read just one paragraph. That has to do, again, with the technical, and then I am going to leave it behind. But because we dealt with it, this may clarify it, and it'll help me to answer the immediate question. Great. Um, Each individual piece is built on two bass lines, 12-tone rows, which also function as chords for that piece, and two metronomic speeds, except for piece 30, which is built on four bass lines, rows, and two metronomic speeds. The center of piece 30 serves as an axis around which the entire cycle reflects itself in various ways. The bass lines, in other words, the rows, chords, metronomic speeds, and order of soloists in the first half of the cycle all move backward in the second half of the cycle. But the pieces sound nothing alike. It's just the materials, individually and collectively, which are being retrograded. Now what I gave to them in the studio was simply the bass lines. All that was on the music stands were bass lines. Um, the total of which it actually ended up to 120 bass lines functioning wow. as, as ostinatos. There are two baselines, two 12 tone row bass lines in each piece, except for piece 30, which has four. Okay. So fifty-eight times two is one sixteen plus four is one twenty. They had all of those hundred and twenty bass lines in front of them, and as they moved from piece to piece, they would they were just playing off the baselines themselves. Um they were free to interpret those baselines harmonically, um as they wished, to approach them as they wish, you know? And um they both have a, a tremendous amount of, of harmonic ingenuity and fantastic ears you know, and they, they played what they played. And I just couldn't be happier with what they played. <laughs> That's all I can tell you there.
2: <laughs> and were they doing that at the same time, like in the same room at the same time?
1: Um, on For the first volume, they were, uh, they, they were recorded on separate days. So no, okay. on the, on the second volume, they actually were in the same room taking turns as we moved, I just went through them the sequ- pieces sequentially and you know if it was John's tune he would blow and then he would just sit there and then Noah would blow on his tune, whatever, but they actually were at the mics in the same room at the same time, yeah, I don't know if they were cheering each other on or, or what they were doing exactly, but we had verbal communication and that's how they went about it <laughs>
2: Fascinating because I think you could listen to this and never think that the thing was put together in so. I, I think disjointed has a pejorative connotation to it, which I don't mean. But I mean it, it's not. This is not the old school. You know, the whole band is in the room with the little partitions in between them, and let's make a record. This is a, a much more complex beast than that, and it just it, it just ends up sounding so great. And I mean, there's there's so. So many places where it just really locks in and that that strikes me as quite a quite a feat to have achieved given the recording process you just described
1: thanks and yeah i mean you're actually right it's not at all like you know cat standing around a mic doing a record you know in in the traditional way it's more like a like a pop music production and when i say pop i'm using an umbrella phrase that i really don't like but i'm talking we understand one another so you know the 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 kind of production you know um reflected that approach, a kind of tracking approach, much more than anything to do with uh, um, you know, a live performance as an ensemble kind of situation. Um, they were hearing in their headphones at different times, different things. Sometimes they would be hearing everything. Sometimes they would be hearing um, just drums and bass. Sometimes they would be hearing drums, bass and horn section. It was really dependent on the piece how dense the piece itself was. They did listen to each piece through before they played what they played. So they had a conception of the character of things, you know, but um, yeah, it was, it's very much put together. And that's true not only of these two volumes of Zosko's jukebox, but actually of the prior records I did, one that was on bridge records and one that was before that on steeplechase records, all of these records have been done where the electronic music is put in place. And then the live performers, either in various combinations together or as individuals come in and track. So, yeah, it's a, it's a time-consuming and a labor-intensive process, but it's all, you know, something that I just love. <laughs> I love doing it. <laughs> Steve,
2: we've, uh, we've gone pretty far without mentioning uh, the other people who are in the band. Would you do that for us?
1: Oh, totally. Um, Noah Preminger is playing all the tenor saxophone solos. John O'Gallagher is playing all the alto saxophone solos. Lamia Streffi Jr. is playing the live drums, which are on the right channel of the record. I'm playing uh, Harmon Muted Trumpet. It's really, really just scattered little parts on the, on the right side, um, the right channel of the record. Rush Johnson on trumpet and Dan Pratt on tenor saxophone are playing all the involved horn parts and they're on the left side of the record.
2: It's a really fabulous band, and uh, I wasn't uh, previously familiar until I started listening to these records with Lamy and Streffy
1: Jr., uh, who plays drums, but
2: wow, what a perfect drummer for this project. Can you say something about Lamy?
1: Oh, Lami's killing, man. I love Lamy's playing. Um, here's kind of a funny story. Back a few years ago, I forget how long I've known him already, but we're really close. Um, he contacted me on Facebook, through Facebook, saying that when he was in Music Conservatory in Austria, the great Dennis Irwin had come through doing a clinic or was on tour or something, but was doing some teaching there for a while. And Dennis befriended Lamy, who was very young at the time, a teenager, and encouraged him to come to New York and laid a copy of a record on him that I was on. It was actually a Rich Perry album called Hearsay that we had done for, it was Rich's date, we did for Steeplechase years ago. And Lamy fell in love with that record. And when he came to the States later at Dennis's invitation, um, after that, he he contacted me on Facebook and we became fast friends. And I was curious then of course to hear him play. So he was gigging at Smalls and I I can't remember who he was with on that particular occasion, but I went down to hear him and he was just killing it. And we, we became friends. And now, I mean, he's, he's doing great. He, he's been doing gigs with Lovano, and he's been doing gigs with um, with Dave Liebden and with George Garzon. And, you know, he's re- really worked his way, you know, in, into the scene. And I hope he continues to, to gain even more, you know, um, notoriety, if that's the right word, because he's just a fabulous player, really fiery, and I, I just love his play. Yeah. So it was a yeah. joy to have him on this record.
2: And one of the things I really dig about uh, doing this show is that I, I'm always exposed. I mean, you just can't know everybody. And I love being exposed to someone who's playing I haven't heard before and who grabs me immediately. And especially on uh, these two volumes of, of Zoskla's Jukebox, I mean, the drumming, maybe this is a dumb thing to say because this is probably true for every record. But I mean, the drumming is so crucial to what's happening here because this music is so rhythmically challenging if, if the drum, drummer were to, you know, drop, uh, drop off on the job, it, it, this thing would fall to pieces.
1: Totally, totally. Um, and he had to, um, I can't even begin to describe the challenges for, for him because, um, because of the fact that there are two layers of tempo in each piece. They really had to be um, exactly synchronized. So what he played had to be on the money at all times. He was, he was free to play stylistically and, and interpret the way he wanted to interpret, but in terms of, of keeping the pulse like rock steady, um, he, there was no, no room for movement in the way that you would expect and want a live band to breathe. You know, no, no band plays metronomically when you go to hear them on stage. You know, I, I, was, I was so fortunate. I mean, I got to sit in front of Tony Williams with Miles and sit in front of Art Blakey and all those cats. I heard all that stuff, you know. And I mean, you know, the music breathes. It, it moves around, you know. With this kind of a project where you're dealing with layering so much dense electronic music with live performance, um, there there was no um, possibility of, of that kind of motion. You know, so it was really a very challenging thing and he he just nailed it. He did a beautiful job. <laughs>
2: In your listening history, uh, kind of led you to the kind of composition that we hear on Zoskals Jukebox. I mean, I I know a lot of the people that you've played with, and you know, they're names that everybody who listens to this show would know. I mean, you've you've played with many many of the greats, but they're all the greats in a what I would say is a more kind of mainstream uh, setting than than this music. And so I wonder where, where in your biography is the, the DNA of, of this kind of music?
1: <laughs> it's funny, man. You know, when, when I was growing up, I mean, you know, as a teenager, you know, I started playing when I was nine. But, but when I was a teenager, I met a guy who, he, and he said, what do you want to do, you know, in music? What's your goal? And at the time, I remember saying to him, oh, man, you know, I, I want to play with The Messengers or with Horace Silver. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, you, you're, you're going to develop along those lines to try to do that. I know that, but you're going to be something else. And I kind of looked at him. I was almost like offended at the time. And I said, why do you say that? His name was John. I said, why do you say that, John? He said, because you like Hendrix and you like Charles Ives and you like all kinds of other things already. And that's going to make it hard for you just to contain yourself in that one thing. And I kind of blew it off at the time because I was just so devoted, you know, I mean, my dream is to be like a blue, no trumpet player, you know? Right. And so, so I just kind of blew it off, but it turned out to be right. And to, to answer your question, I mean, I grew up listening to all kinds of music, even though, you know, quote unquote jazz, meaning like the the continuum from, you know, Lewis to Bird to Miles to Train and beyond. Even though even though that was central, I was already involved, even in passing, you know, as as a youngster with um, contemporary classical music and with different kinds of popular music as well. And I've retained those interests. So when I put when I really began to find myself in terms of writing the music I wanted to write or being able to get to the kind of music I wanted to write, I had long since had a conception of that music. And it was not straight ahead. You know, it wasn't hard bop or anything resembling that. It was something else that I had in in visions, you know, that I had in my head somehow. And it was a question of being able to do it, you know. But by the time I got into my 20s, certainly by my later 20s, I was really very deeply involved with, um, with an interest in a study of contemporary classical music. And that had a profound effect and with the dawning of different kinds of electronic based popular music, um, that had, a, had a, had an effect, you know, Bjork's music or, or, uh, MIA or Don Richard to mention some current performers fly you know, or even Erica Badu, who, who might stand apart from the rest of them in many ways, but still that kind of thing um, is, is important to me. You know, it's not that I wanted the style of that music, but there was the, the sound world, especially in Bjork's music, the sound world of it, and the sonic surface of her music and a lot of those other people that I mentioned became very important. At the same time, the kinds of musical materials that I was becoming familiar with and then studying in say Schoenberg's music or Charles Warren's music or Elliot Carter's music, those things became very important to me, and of course, in the background, still all you know forever more will be home. It is all the the Blue Note catalog and Bird and Miles and Train and all of that stuff. So it's never like I'm sitting down trying to make a hybrid music. It just kind of it comes out this way, <laughs>
2: which I think is perfect. I mean, I I think part of this is because of what I've been listening to recently. But for example. Uh, in the last couple times I listened to these records, to Zosko's Jukebox 1 and 2, um, I was thinking of Ligeti. And part of that is because I've been listening to a bunch of Ligeti recently for another reason. Um, you know, but the, you know, the incredible rhythmic complexity and, and creativity. And I, I love that idea – we always talk about the fact that what you're supposed to do is absorb all this other music and then sound like yourself, you know, as a result of the absorption. I don't think everybody always gets there. I think a lot of people absorb music and then they play that music back. Um, This, to me, these records sound, and, and these are the records on which I'm basing what I think you sound like, but these records sound like a person distinct from all those other things that you just mentioned, which I really dig about them. And I think it's, uh, I mean, this is mostly a compliment, not a question, but its I think that's quite an achievement. That's quite a thing, to to be able to hear the strains of all those things in the music, but never to think, oh, well, that's kind of derivative of this, and that's kind of derivative of that. I mean, this just sounds like, oh, this is Steve Lampert's sound.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I, the, that to me, it, it is the goal, but I don't feel it's a goal you can force. It's a goal that takes, I think, at least for most people, a long time and... You know, a lot of a lot of music. You know, hearing a lot of music and really um, studying a lot of music, really assimilating a lot of music. That you take it, take what you need from it inside you to a point where it becomes like your name, like your fingerprint. It just becomes part of you somehow. You know, but I, I think that that is the goal. I mean, I certainly would never dream in a in a million years of, of you know trying to duplicate any of that stuff. Um, it's not me, and, uh, well, maybe I should just put a period at the end of that. I, I just know it's not me. You know, no matter how much I love Elliot Carter's music, and God knows I love it, or Schoenberg's music, you know, or so on, I mean, I, I could, um, it, it's not me. I like music with a beat, you know, with a, I like music with a beat in the sense that social music, as Miles used to call it, of all types have a beat. I like to be able to tap my foot for my own music and for the kind of stuff that I like to play. It's not that I miss that in in the great music that I love. I certainly don't miss it when I listen to Carter or to Warren, but for myself, it's it's a core value.
2: unfortunately don't have enough uh limb independence to be able to tap my feet in two different meters at the same time so <laughs> this this album uh presented me with some problems where that uh, that was concerned you uh you needed Tony Williams to tap his feet that way i think um so one thing I learned about you, and I actually learned it in the 30 seconds that we talked before we started recording um, was uh, I, I said to you, if there are gigs that you want to promote, then at you know at the end of this thing, you should talk about them. And you told me, well, that's not going to be an issue. Uh, and I'm, I'm <laughs> curious as to
1: why. <clears throat> the reason why, as, as I explained to you very briefly before, I, mean, I, I haven't played a gig in a long, long, long time. And the reason for that, um actually there's reasons for that many reasons um i drifted off the scene as a player um, in a sense in relation to um the intensity with which i began to spend time composing my music as the writing became more and more important the playing really became less important at the same time the direction that my music was going began to make me feel, um, I don't know if uncomfortable is the right word, but um, unhappy with the playing situations. That kind of long story short, you know, playing uh, tunes, you know, playing in a straight ahead setting began to seem more and more removed from who I actually was and what I was thinking about musically. And it got to the point finally where it felt almost like a mask where be, where for decades before it had been done with absolute conviction and honesty because it was me, it began in stages to, to feel kind of like an act, like I was putting a hat on to do something, pretending to be something that I, I knew in my heart I no longer was. And as that continued, that feeling continued to grow, um, I just, you know, basically drifted off the playing scene. Um It's not that I don't love the trumpet I do, and I play it in the house every day. I still play it, you know, but the desire somehow to go out and and play in that kind of setting drifted away. At the same time, I realized that to do the kind of music that I was to perform the kind of music that I was writing would be a tremendously difficult undertaking. Um, not just musically, but economically as well. You know, the audience would probably be like three people and musicians (laughs) need to be paid and rehearsal halls have to be paid for and so on and so forth. It just wasn't a a viable thing for me to attempt to perform the music that I was composing.
2: Yeah, and you don't don't write the kind of music that you can just get, you know, four people together and uh, they go
1: over the charts for two minutes before the gig. No. No, it's not the kind of thing. I mean, the only the only way it could be done would be, like many of the concerts I see, um, of music, of a type of music in particular, which I am always interested in, pieces which combine pre-recorded electronic music of many different types with live performance. And I hear a lot of those kinds of pieces, many of which are certainly considered classic by now, in the context of contemporary classic uh, contemporary classical recitals. So, I mean, I could attempt to do my music that way, but again, it, it would demand a tremendous amount of rehearsal time. And, and you know, it's like, where are you going to do it, Jason? You know, and who's going to come out to hear it? <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's not something that I can afford to do, you know, and it's it's something that would be so incredibly time-consuming and get through to so few people I'd, I've just never been willing, really, to get involved with it. You know, if I if I if I had come to this music when I was 20 or 25, it might have been a different story. But it took me a long time. I mean, I I didn't make my first the first record of my own music, the one for Steeplechase, until I was um, almost 40 years old. And that that represents a long period of, of development and, and growth until I really felt like okay i have something of my own to say and now i really want to say it you know but that's like in the distant past now you know what i mean so to come out and attempt to to play this music at this point in my life um it's, it just doesn't seem reasonable really <laughs>
2: Steve, uh, what's the best way for people to get their hands on Volume 1 of Zoskal's Jukebox?
1: Um, Well, it's available uh, through iTunes, and it's available in physical form through CD Baby. So for for the minute, those are the two places. You can download it from iTunes or or get the hard copy from CD Baby.
0: Um,
1: And then... Oh, I'm sorry. Please, go ahead. No, I was just going to mention my website. Which I forgot to mention. Um, if anybody's interested in that, it's at uh, steve-lampert.com. Uh,
2: uh, we'll have links to uh, all of that at thejazzsession.com in the show notes for this show. Now, Volume Two is on the way, uh, and you know, Volume Two is uh, uh, an essential companion to Volume One since it is conceived as one 59-section uh, piece. Uh, when can we get our hands on Volume Two?
1: I hope that it'll be available not later than the early spring. I'm I'm really just waiting on some paperwork, but the the disc is manufactured and it's sitting here in boxes in my apartment. And I I really do hope to release it um, certainly not later than than early April and possibly before.
2: And, you know, not to brag, but as is clear to the listeners from this interview, I have a copy. So sorry, all the (laughs) listeners, but you can get yours very soon. Uh, And trust me, it's well worth it. Uh, my guest uh, for this show, for, I, I couldn't think of a better way to uh, bring the jazz session back uh, than highlighting this really creative and wonderful music. Uh, my guest is Steve Lampert. Uh, the albums are Zoskos Jukebox Volume 1, which is currently available. Uh, uh, you can get it at iTunes, at CD Baby, uh, and Volume 2, which will be uh, out and available for your purchase uh, quite soon. Steve, what a pleasure uh, to have you on the show, and I thank you so much for helping me bring the show back in style.
1: Oh, man, that, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for doing this wonderful show, man. It means everything to to the community, really. I think we're all very grateful to have you doing this and continued success with it, Jason.
2: Volume of Zoskel's Jukebox by Steve Lambert. I'm Jason Crane. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. The Respect Sextet composed our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find The Jazz Session at TheJazzSession.com, where more than 400 episodes await your free streaming or downloading pleasure. And remember, if you want to help me keep the show on the air and keep the site online, Please go to thejazzsession.com and join. It's very easy to click the subscribe button. Super, super simple. Take a few seconds from PayPal. You'll be all set. And your five bucks a month goes further than you might expect. Or is that farther? I don't know. Anyway, go out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back in two weeks for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.